So the Apostles' Creed reads like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. And so we'll start with our text, Matthew chapter 27. And as we work through this, we're going to ask a couple questions, and we're going to make a couple of statements, and I just identify a couple of things. But some of the questions that we're going to ask are, and we're going to answer, are what do we understand by the word or the idea that Christ suffered? I know when we think about, you know, the, the, the betrayal of Jesus, the, the stages meet going up to the cross, it's almost like we, if we have been in the faith or if we have just a, a slight understanding of the gospel, these things seem familiar and obvious. Yes, of course, Christ suffered. But we really want to just hone in on what does it mean for Christ to suffer? We also want to ask the question, um, what does it mean for Christ to suffer under the hands of the Romans? So in this case, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We will see and affirm that Christ did indeed die and that he was truly buried. And lastly, we will answer the question, what does it mean to die when we consider the phrase, he descended into hell? So let's pray for our time here today. Father, we thank you for this time of just continued in this mode of worship. We thank you for the singing and the prayer. But now, Lord, it is our time, your time, to feed us from your word. And we ask that indeed our hearts would be open, our eyes the eyes to our hearts and our minds, the ears to our hearts and our minds would be open to receive your word. Help us to see the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished all things required for the forgiveness of sins and for our salvation. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your son. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for redeeming saints, for taking dead hearts and making them alive to be able to respond and receive the gospel, the Spirit of Christ, who points us to a beautiful and wonderful Redeemer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how faithful it is to historical accounts. In this case, the work and person of Christ in his suffering, in his crucifixion, in his death, and in his burial. We love you, Lord. Be gracious to us. Feed us your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so uh, we were going to begin with uh, a, Heidelberg, the, a question from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism dates to 1563. Um, for Reformed Baptists, there's the Orthodox Catechism from Hercules Collins, which is from 1680. It mimics what is known as the Heidelberg Catechism, but it puts the Baptist spin on it, which uh, historical Baptists did things like that. But they both ask this question for question number 37. What do you understand by the word suffered? And the answer that they both give is that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, that is his crucifixion, Christ sustained in both body and soul the anger, or we can say the wrath of God. And so I'm thankful for our call or our, our uh, reading of scripture today out of Isaiah 53. We're gonna that's just gonna be sprinkled all throughout the sermon today. But Isaiah 53, verse 4, which if you don't know, the book of Isaiah was written some 400 plus years prior to the coming of the Messiah. And so clearly, as I hope you saw earlier when we read it, it just points to Christ. But it's a helpful passage that really fleshes out the sufferings of Christ and leading up to his crucifixion and his death. But Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our, our griefs and carried our, our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Ultimately, Jesus suffered the wrath of God. And this plays out for us, at least in time and space, you know, some 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ physically underwent sufferings under the hand of 
Pontius Pilate. But for the Christian and for the theological aspect of what Jesus went through, Jesus bore the full wrath of God in his suffering. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 says that he had, when we consider the sufferings of Christ, Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. As the catechism answered the question, it said that during his whole life on earth, Christ experienced in his sufferings the wrath of God. And so when we consider, like Landon preached on last Sunday, as we consider the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, he was born in a lowly estate. He was born to a virgin, to a young mother who wasn't married yet to a father. And he was born in a stable with animals and born in a manger. From the very beginning, his life was sought after by Herod, who sought to kill him. And so they flee to Egypt. Afterwards, they come back and they move to Nazareth. And he later is known as a Nazarene. The significance in calling him a Nazarene adds to a level to his sufferings. For Nazareth was a city roughly 55 miles north of Jerusalem. And during the time of Jesus, the Jews held those from Nazareth, a city within the region of Galilee, in very low esteem. And we can see this when um, in John chapter 1, verse 46, where Nathaniel's question says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, as we sang earlier, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. John chapter 1 verse 11 says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so consider the ministry of Jesus. Over and over and over he is rejected by those whom should have been expecting and recognizing their Messiah. The teachers of the law, the teachers of the Old Testament taught these things and they, they sort of bloated about the fact that they obeyed all the law. And yet he came to his own and his own received him not. Matthew chapter 11 verse 19 says that the Son of Man came eating. Well, this is, their accus or this is Jesus talking about the accusations against him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, Jesus says. Instead, they rejected him many times, plotting and scheming against to find ways to murder him. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, because Jesus is working all these miracles and he's casting out demons, they say, that uh, they say that it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Indeed, the sufferings of Christ did not begin at his betrayal. Christ, during his whole life, experienced the full wrath of God over, over, and over again through the actions and through the works of the people around him. But it is especially in the time leading up to and including his death, where we are going to see how Christ sustained in both his body and in his soul the wrath of God. But one might ask, why did Christ have to suffer the wrath of God? And really, brothers and sisters, it's because of sin. It's because of the curse of Adam and our own hearts that are bent towards unrighteousness. One act of sin condemns us. One act of unrighteousness, the wages of sin, is death. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5 says, Surely he has borne our grief, and he has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Christ, who is God and man, being born sinless and with the inability to sin, obeyed the law perfectly and bore the suffering that we deserve, so that through Christ we might find forgiveness of sins, a full and perfect relationship with the Father, having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And as we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We saw last week the incarnation. That is the beginning of him sort of taking on the form of a servant. Today we move down even further to his sufferings of, of leading up to his crucifixion. And with the idea of him descending into hell, we'll talk about the different aspects of what that could mean in regards to his sufferings and also moving back up towards his exaltation through his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. But it says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let us in our passage now see the sufferings of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1, starts out when saying, When morning came, this is the day after his betrayal, or the morning after his betrayal, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And verse 2 says, And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And like I said, this is the morning after Christ was betrayed by one of his own disciples. As we all know, and maybe some of you don't know, this disciple, his name was Judas. This disciple was chosen, was called out like the others, like the other 11, by Christ. Judas held a unique role in that he held the purse of the, of the ministry of Christ. And Jesus chose this man knowing that he would betray him. And Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. Luke tells us of this account. In Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, when he says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so we know that in the night of him praying on the Mount of Olives, Judas shows up and with the kiss, the brotherly kiss of a friend, of a student and a rabbi, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And so Jesus is betrayed and Jesus is arrested and taken to the high priest's house that night. It is there where Jesus undergoes questioning and false accusations and beatings. And also, it is the place where Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. And so we see betrayal, denial, false accusations. This is all adding to the sufferings of Christ. Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 63 through 65 talks about that night where Luke says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody, they were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him to prophesy. Who is it that struck you, they asked him. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. This is the morning that, that our passage, verses 1 through 2, are, are talking about. And so they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And so who is Pilate? Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea. Later on, I'm going to talk about Herod. Herod was also a, uh, uh, a governor of the province of Galilee. But they were both serving under Emperor Tiberius from uh, AD 26 or 27 to AD 36, 37. And so Pilate represents Rome in Judea. And it is under the heavy civil hand of Rome that Jesus is going to suffer and that Jesus is going to be crucified. And so when we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we don't want to just focus on the fact that he stood before Pilate and Pilate hands him over to be crucified. But we want to read that he suffered. Consider all the different stages of his suffering, which is what we're going to do. But know that ultimately it climaxed under the, under the oversight of Pilate in uh, the region, uh, who was the governor of the region of Judea. 
And so we see his sufferings begin with the betrayal of Judas, and it, it includes the denial of Peter. And Jesus is mocked again. Jesus is beaten. And while in custody, and Jesus is bound, and he is led to Pilate. And for the sake of focusing on Christ, verses 3 through 10 speak of Judas's response to all of this. He ends up hanging himself. That's all I'm going to say about that. We're going to continue moving forward, focusing on the sufferings of Christ. So if we go to Matthew chapter 11, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 14, those verses read like this. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, First of all, that's a crazy question because Tiberius is emperor of Rome. And this is a province of Rome. And really, Pilate represents Rome in this area. But he's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? And, he, and Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, and let's not forget this, I find no guilt in this man. This is consistent throughout, really, this I mean, he hands him over, and he's guilty for that. But throughout this uh, back and forth with um, with Jesus and then with his, his accusers, Pilate will consistently say, I, I find no guilt in this man. But he says, I find no guilt in this man. And then Luke, uh, and then verse 5 says, but they were urgent. I'm sorry. It says, but I find, oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I was reading the wrong passage. But let's say, so he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. Verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. Jesus kept very silent when, we, when uh, speaking to his accusers. Then Pilate said to him, verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But again, Jesus gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor, he was greatly amazed. And here, going to what I was accidentally reading, Luke chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, give us some additional accounts of, of just this going back and forth. So when Pilate asked him in verse 3 of Luke chapter 23, you feel free to turn there if you want. You don't have to. Uh, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, and he answered him, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Remember that. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place, which is true. Christ's ministry was all over the place, and he was out there preaching and stirring the, the pot uh, you know, of, the, of the Jews of that time. Then Pilate heard this. He asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Remember, Herod is over the region of Galilee. And so this is just to flesh out additionally the sufferings of Christ. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. Again, Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him to add to his suffering. And verse 11 says, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they send him back to Pilate in this way. And Herod, and this is a weird statement, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one, with one another. And so we see in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 14, and this account in Luke that Jesus was questioned by both Pilate and Herod, and that Jesus was mocked by Herod and his soldiers. And during this whole time, Jesus made no answer. He remained silent, which reminds us again of our Isaiah 53 passage that we read in verse 7, where it says, He was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And if you could think of a lamb, like we've had, we've had little goats before. They are not quiet, okay? <laughs> but it says here, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I mean, Jesus is, up, is before the people. Jesus knows what's coming down the line. 
you know, these accusers and these people that have oversight over him are just working out the inevitable thing. Jesus is going to be slaughtered. He's going to be crucified. And yet Jesus opens not his mouth. So Jesus' sufferings continue in that Pilate gives the people, he gives the people an opportunity to choose between Jesus and a notorious criminal named Barabbas. Luke chapter 23, 19 tells us that Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. But John tells us that Barabbas also, he was a robber. So Barabbas is a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. And so Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 19 tell us that now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, who was a murderer, a robber, an insurrectionist, or Jesus, who is called the Christ, that is Messiah. For he knew that it was out of envy. Here, Pilate knows what's going on. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And verse 19 says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, even his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. But we end up knowing what the outcome is for Christ. And so we see the continued rejection of the Messiah by his own people. Verses 20 through 23 says, Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Talk about like, like influencing votes here, right? They were uh, persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas, just hear them screaming Barabbas' name. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, Let him, I mean, it's like they're screaming, Let him be crucified. And Pilate says, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Luke in chapter 23, verse 22, Luke actually tells us that that Pilate asks this question of the crowd three times. Verse 22 says, A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. So what does Pilate do? He says, I will therefore punish him and then release him. And so John chapter 19 verse 12 tells us that, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes him a king opposes Caesar. And so Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 through 26 tell us that Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing with this crowd, but rather that a riot was beginning. And so he takes water and he washes his hand before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood beat on us and on our children. Can you imagine keeping such words loosely with regards to this man? I mean, they think that this is how confident they are or how full of hatred they are for the Messiah. The question is, I mean, we see this and we hear, how could they do that? And yet be reminded of our daily walks. If we dare call ourselves Christians and how what kind of life are we living outside of this place behind hidden doors, behind the safe environment of our home where maybe no one can see us. Yet they say, his blood be on, they say, his blood be on us and on our children. So then Pilate releases for them Barabbas, a murderer, a robber, and an insurrectionist, and having scourged Jesus. If you don't know what that is, that's... The Romans tying him to a post, his bare back exposed, and then whipping him with a whip that has 
nine ends, nine to 12 ends on it. And on each end, there are bones and rocks and glass and anything that can tear into the back of his flesh and wrap around to his ribs and they yank on it and tear his flesh apart. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. And so Jesus' suffering continues. Verses 27 through 31, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion. That's approximately like 480 men. They gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. This continues on the mockery of Jesus. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed out of his hand, and they struck him on the head, which has a crown of thorns on. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. And so comes our next phrase in this Apostles' Creed. We've here now presented the fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was crucified. Christ's sufferings continue on to his crucifixion. John chapter 19, verse 16 through 17 tell us, So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. And so part of the shame of crucifixion is that those who undergo crucifixion, they had to carry the very beam that they were going to be crucified on to the place at which they were going to be crucified at. And the way of the cross, the distance from Pilate's house, or where this was taking place, to, uh, to the hill on which he was crucified is about a half a mile. It is a walk of shame. People lining the roads, mocking and spitting in on the guilty who are being led by Roman soldiers to their demise. The soldiers just aren't directing traffic or the crowd. They're adding to the mockery as well. Luke chapter 23, verse 27 says, And there followed him, in this case, a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 exposes just the weakness of Christ at this point. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And could you imagine being Simon of Cyrene? I mean, this is the walk of shame, carrying this beam that is, uh, a, that is a tool for destruction. Simon has to carry this. Luke chapter 23, verse 32 tells us that the two criminals that we know crucified on either side of Christ, the two others who were criminals, and these were robbers as well, they were led away to be put to death with him. And so you have this procession of what seemingly is deemed you know, you know, criminals of the state, in this case of Rome, that are carrying their own beams. Jesus is weak enough to the point where they have to find someone else to carry his beam, and they walk this the way of shame to Golgotha, Matthew chapter 27, verse 33 through 34 say, And when they came to the place of called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they end up offering Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So in the Bible, the word gall most often refers to a bitter tasting substance made of a plant such as wormwood or myrrh. And here is, this is a very famous um, instance in which uh, this mixture is, is being presented to us. Mark chapter 15, 23 specifies that the bitterness in the wine was due to the presence of myrrh. Wine mixed with bitter herbs or myrrh created a potion that dulled the senses of pain. The mixture of sour wine and gall was often given to the suffering to ease their pain in death, almost to prolong death, really. But Jesus would not drink it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Mark chapter 15, verse 25 tells us that it was the third hour, that is like nine o'clock in the morning, when Jesus was crucified. Matthew chapter 27, verse 36 says that once they crucified them, they sat, they sat down, these soldiers, they sat down and they kept watch over him there. Verse 37 says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The mockery continues. The suffering continues. That inscription over his head was meant to, aside from the visual sign of the cross, you know, the, what the Romans did very well, all of this was meant to mock not just the Jews, but Christ as well. The Jews recognized this, and in John chapter 19, verse 20 through 22, tells us that many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city of Jerusalem. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, so that all could read. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Remember, he, you know, this blood is on you guys. And so Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 tells us that then two robbers were also crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. In antiquity, crucifixion was considered one of the most brutal and shameful modes of death. Probably originating with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it was used systematically by the Persians in the 6th century BC. Alexander the Great brought it from there to the eastern Mediterranean countries in the 4th century BC, and the Phoenicians introduced it to Rome in the 3rd century BC. It was virtually, virtually never used in pre-Hellenic Greece, but the Romans, they perfected it. They perfected crucifixion for over 500 years until it was abolished by Constantine I in the 4th century A.D. Crucifixion in Roman times was applied most, mostly to slaves, disgraced soldiers, high criminals, Christians, and foreigners, but very rarely on Roman citizens. The point here is that the Romans knew what they were doing in crucifixion, and they did it very well. And so Jesus is crucified with two robbers on either side of him. So the suffering continues during his crucifixion. Verses 39 through 40 say, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, later on, that's going to come back around. I mean, they, they missed what that really meant. Really, Jesus is talking about his body and his resurrection. And later on, we'll hear the Pharisees coming and saying, Hey, we need to seal up this tomb because he kept saying, Destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up. But they're mocking him. These people are mocking him, and they're saying, "Destroy you who said, destroy the temple in three days, and I will rebuild it in three days. You who said that, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41 through 43 says, So also the chief priests with the scribe and elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, you know, this is a good place to point people to the fact that Jesus declared himself equal with God. And they heard that. There's no doubting that Christ knew who he was and said who he was. He made himself out to be equal with God. Verse 44 says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also, they reviled him in the same way. When it comes to crucifixion, death usually comes from anywhere between six hours to sometimes four days, depending on how prolonged they manage to make, to draw this out. A lot of times it was due to multifactorial pathology, which just means multiple injuries, compounded injuries. The after effects of compulsory scourging and maiming, hemorrhage and dehydration causing hypo, hypovolemic shock and pain. That is just decreased volume of circulating blood in the body. 
But the most important factor was pr progressive asphyxia, which is de severe deficiency of oxygen caused by impairment of respiratory movement. That means struggling to breathe, not taking enough oxygen in. This resulted in anoxemia, which is, again, deficiency of oxygen, but in this case in the blood, which exaggerated that hypovolemic shock. Death was probably commonly precipitated by cardiac arrest caused by vasovagal reflexes, initiated inter alia by severe anoxemia, severe pain, body blows, and breaking of the large bones. The attending Romans guards could only leave the site after the victim had died and were known to pre precipitate death by means of deliberate fracturing. And we know this. They end up fracturing the knees of the two robbers on Jesus' sides. And they end up, remember, piercing his side. To just, to add, you know, they wanted to call it quits. They weren't going for the four-day haul. They were going for the six-hour crucifixion. So the attending Roman guards could only leave the site after the victim had died and were known to precipitate death by means of deliberate fracturing of the tibia or the fibula, spear stab wounds into the heart. That's what happened to Christ. Sharp blows to the front of the chest or a smoking fire built at the foot of the cross to asphyxiate the victim, to suffocate him. Crucifixion was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And it's important when we confess these words in this creed, it's one word that we say, crucified. But it is full of information that we're not, of things that we're not really accustomed to. But they were real, they were gory. Imagine the flesh and the blood all over the place coming down the cross. And yet the people can only think to mock Christ during this time. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 says that it was, again, the third hour when they crucified him, so 9 o'clock in the morning. But verse 45 in our text says that from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So from 12 to 3 p.m. there was darkness. Verse 46 says, in about the ninth hour, that's the 3 p.m. So for three hours, here he is on the cross, and there's just silence. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we see, I mean, the wrath of God. And the God-man, the, the man part, not the God part, but the man, the nature of man in Christ experiencing the full wrath of God. And so we see, yes, indeed, the sufferings of both body and soul is on that old rugged cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't that Jesus did not know that he was going to suffer. He knew. Jesus throughout his ministry predicted the fact, uh, the, the truth of his sufferings to come and his crucifixion. But Jesus indeed is experiencing that full wrath of God. And we can hear it through the words of him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the mockery continues. I mean, I'm sure they're asking these questions that we're about to read, but it's like he told you who he was. The signs and the miracles, they gave testimony to who he was. So they say, the bystanders say, and some of the by, in verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them, verse 48, and one of them at, at once ran and took a sponge and they filled it with sour wine and they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. Verse 49, but the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. John chapter 19, verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, the sour wine he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So we talked about the Heidelberg Catechism, mirroring that, the Orthodox Catechism, question 39. The question asks, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? And the answer is yes. This death 
death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, on you, on all mankind. He shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 13 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide or obey all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, not by the law, or not by works of the law. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That beam that he had to carry, that he couldn't carry, that Simon carried, that he was crucified on, that he was mocked on, that he was spat upon, that they, they mocked him with words, that, you know, the king of the Jews sign above his head. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so we see the end of Christ's suffering, the full wrath of God, Christ becoming a curse for us, Christ absorbing or taking on the full wrath of God for us, and he says, it is finished. Moving through the Apostles' Creed, we have said, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died is the next word. Crucifixion was ultimate was the ultimate punishment symbol meant to communicate a point to everyone by the Romans. Oppose Rome and die. It was a symbolic statement that we are Roman power and you are nothing. And if you oppose us, we will prove it by rendering you absolutely, completely powerless while we rack your body with pain and make you scream. And the proof did not end with your last breath. Typically, like I said earlier, Romans would leave bodies on the cross to display the, the power of Rome, how easy it, it is for them to take someone from point A to point B. And imagine looking the way Jesus did, praying in Mount of Olives to the betrayal of a suffering and murdered, crucified Christ. The point here is that Christ did indeed die. For a time in modern history, uh, to dismiss the idea of resurrection, sometimes people would posit this idea that Christ didn't die. He just passed out. And that, that is how we explain the fact that he was put in a tomb. He woke up three days later, and you know that's the idea of resurrection. But no. And there's, this hypothesis is called the swoon hypothesis. This is an old, not too many people say that anymore. But the idea is, is that, they have to come up with some way to deny the resurrection and to think that the Romans didn't know what they were doing. They did. And so we can affirm that Christ did indeed die. And so what does it mean to die? Well, the scriptures teach, this is from a commentary, the scriptures teach that death is the separation of the soul from the body. When men die and are buried, their body remains in the earth and dissolves. Some have said that if you distinguish, if you distinguish my soul from my body, you defined me. That is the soul. Because your body, you could lose an arm and you are still you. But if you separate the soul from the body, you are your soul. A body and a soul constitute the definition of what it means to be a human. If you divide my soul from my body, you kill me. A soul without a body is simply a dead human. And so James chapter 2, verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, I mean, that's a dead, dead person, so also faith apart from works is dead. In 2 Peter, um, in chapter 1, verse 14, Peter equates um, death to the putting off of this body. So you put off the body, that person is dead. 
So Jesus did die indeed. Um, on the day of Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2, Peter says, in speaking to the, to the men of Israel, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, when Paul or when the apostles are arrested by the council of the Sadducees, Peter stands up and says that the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And then Peter and Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, Peter says, we are all witnesses. So Christ's crucifixion and his death was seen by all. And Peter could appeal to this as a fact, as a, as a, as a fact of history, that you killed him. On a tree. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So why did Jesus have to die? As we said earlier, because of the curse of sin. For the wages of sin demand it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus became a curse for us and died so that we might become free from the curse and be absolved of the debt we owe as sinners. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son. Again, this is, this is really the beginning of His humiliation. He sends His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, to, I, to our Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why did he have to die? For our transgressions, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so, yes, Jesus died. He, Jesus did indeed die. He must die. And so what happens during, the, during this time of Jesus dying when he says it is finished? Going back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Much can be said about, the, about this. Just briefly, this curtain separated the people of God from the Holy of Holies, where once a year, one priest went in to pour blood on, on the altar. And yet, this curtain is torn in two to signify now that the way has been opened for anyone to come to the Father. And just, it's a cool little note, but this curtain tears from top to bottom. This is not a small little curtain. This is a huge curtain, a heavy curtain that separates the holy from the holy of holies. And so it says in verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Apparently during this time of the earth shaking, in verse 52 it says that tombs were also opened. And then it says, and, at his res and this is me adding these words, and at his resurrection, 
It says, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's like Matthew's talking about, you know, the earth shook and these tombs opened. And he's like, oh yeah, and when Christ resurrected, apparently there were saints who came back from the dead as well. Not much more is said about that other than this shows the victory of Christ over sin and death. Verse 54 says, And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 55 through 56, There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James. And so now we see he has suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, and he died. And now we go to the affirmation that he was buried. We can ask the question, why was he buried? Well, his burial really testifies to the fact, again, that Christ indeed did die. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Jesus took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. Sorry, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, and they were sitting opposite the tomb. Mark's, Mark chapter 15, verse 43 says that Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respected member of the council, that's the council of the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. We also know from Mark that um, when Joseph asked for the body, it says that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted this corpse to Joseph. And in John, John tells us that Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, also who earlier had come to Jesus by, not, by night in John chapter 3, this Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And then back to Isaiah 53, verse 9, Isaiah says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Luke chapter 23, verse 56, Luke tells us that after preparing Jesus' body for burial and rolling the stone, that on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So they close up the tomb, Joseph, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, the, of James and John, because <clears throat> Jesus died on the Sabbath, they, they rested according to the commandment. Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66 gives us a different account of what the Pharisees did on that day. Matthew writes that the Pharisees were more concerned what, what Matthew writes what the Pharisees were more concerned with on the Sabbath day. Verse 62, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb. This sounds like work on the Sabbath. So they, go, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. It's amazing just how blind the teachers are of that day. They have been given the Messiah that has been promised to them in the Old Testament. And here... They even hear of 
the idea that he affirmed that he would be brought back to life three days later, the man is dead. If he wasn't who he says, they're so concerned with, you know, this ministry continuing on that even perhaps his disciples would steal his body. This goes to show that they did not believe a lick of what Jesus was saying. <clears throat> and so we see that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and he died and he was buried. And so now comes our next phrase, that he descended into hell. And so I have one quote here that the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest statements of collective Christian beliefs. It actually comes all the way, dates all the way back to like 300 to 400 AD. And this, is, this, this creed uh, and is a collective of Christian beliefs which many churches continue to confess to, to this day. We confess this. The phrase, he descended to hell, or you could say he descended to the dead, has made some reluctant has made some reluctant to embrace this creed. Others redefine this article into something entirely contrary to its intended meaning. <clears throat> Sometimes some churches just omit that phrase entirely. But since its very beginning, that phrase has always been in there. So much debate has been taken within Orthodox Protestantism uh, that suffice it to say there are many views, but these are all brothers and sisters in Christ. So my hope is to at least posits what some of these views are. But first, I just want to address that the word hell is very misleading. Uh, when we think of life after death, we tend to think in categories of heaven and hell. So the thought that he descended into hell is somewhat um, off-putting. But this is not the case in Scripture. The Old Testament speaks of a common place uh, where all the dead go, both the wicked and, and the righteous, prior to Christ's death and resurrection. Um, what I mean by that is that you have the wicked and the righteous who go to a place. The righteous, after Christ's death and resurrection, end up going to heaven. So they no longer go to this place. But this place is called Sheol in Hebrew, and in the Greek it's called Hades. And in this place also is where Satan is bound and where the fallen angels reside. And so the question is, what does the phrase, he descended into hell, actually mean. And so I'm just going to give four views, okay? So one view is, it means soul sleep. That is to say that Christ went down into the grave, both soul and body, for three days. And in that sense, he descended into hell. Three days later, he arose from the dead. So inactivity, it's like blinking and waking up again from the perspective of Jesus. But in that respect, some argue that that's what that phrase means, and they're comfortable with affirming that. Another position is that all the sufferings and the agonies of the punishment of hell were experienced by Christ on the cross. And so in that respect, saying he descended to hell, well, from, you know, from his betrayal, all the, everything we went through, including everything on the cross, that, that sums up this idea of he descended into hell. Again, remember, hell is not hell as, as we know. We're talking about this uh, invisible intermediate state where the wicked and the righteous go. His soul, his, uh, and so that's what some deposit. And this view seems odd since it refers to his sufferings in the, in the creed. It, and it says that he, he suffered, he uh, was crucified, he died and was buried. And it's like he descended to hell like they want to put it you know, back to pointing to what we've just confessed in the creed. So it just seems, it seems odd. This is actually a view that, that John Calvin held to, and it's actually a view that a lot, of, a lot of Reformed Protestants hold to this day. A third view, and a probably a more or less unknown view, is, that, um, is this view that affirms that Christ descended into this realm of the dead during his death and his resurrection. And so because that's less known to all of us, I'm going to expound on that just a little bit more. So this view holds that Jesus descended into Sheol, and it really it, it, it affirms three things. It affirms that he descended into Sheol to proclaim victory over sin and death and rescue the captive souls of the righteous who have been waiting for their Messiah to pay the sin debt that they deserve 
but who trusted in the promises of the forthcoming Messiah. So what I'm saying is all those who died having faith in the promises of the Messiah. So if you, if you read Hebrews and you think of you know, the, the people of faith and those who we don't know about, all those who died prior to Christ paying the debt that was, hadn't been paid yet, but it was credited to them to where they could be declared righteous, these saints of old went down to Sheol. But we're going to read, or I'm going to read Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 23. These saints, they have been there in Sheol waiting for the victory of the Messiah over sin and death. These saints are comforted in an area of Sheol known as Abraham's bosom. So if we consider this parable that Jesus gives of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 23, shed light on this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted, feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, when dogs came, moreover, even the dogs came and they would lick the swords of the sores of Lazarus. Lazarus, this poor man, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's the bosom that we're talking about in Sheol. The rich man also died and was buried, and he goes down into Hades. And being in torment, in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so the idea is in Sheol, there's the abode of the righteous who are comforted at Abraham's side or in this place called Abraham's bosom. And there's a chasm between the righteous and the wicked where the wicked are sent and are tormented day and night. They can see one another. And if you were to continue reading the story of the rich man of Lazarus, they can even communicate across this chasm. And so we see the fate of the wicked. They're separated and shield by this great chasm. The wicked, they see the comfort of the righteous and the righteous can see the torment of the wicked. And so this idea is that Jesus descends into shield to declare victory over sin and death to the righteous in the view of the wicked. And this is not to offer the wicked sort of like a second opportunity to come to saving faith in Christ. This is to heap condemnation on them for having denied the promises of the Messiah, having lived in, in the guilt of Adam and in suffering the, their own wages of sin. Having now conquered sin and death, Jesus transfers those blood-bought souls eventually to heaven during this time frame so that now those who die in faith in Christ no longer go to this Abraham's bosom. It's empty now. We now go to where Jesus is at. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. Where I am, there you will be with me also. And so now the saints post-Christ's death and resurrection go directly to where Christ is at. In Our souls do waiting to all of them, both the Old and New Testament saints, to be united with new bodies and to be united with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But a third thing there to add was that Jesus also descended into Sheol to declare victory over Satan and the fallen angels by binding the strong man, having now conquered sin and death and snatching from him the keys to death and Hades. This binding of Satan, we can read this in Luke chapter 11, verse 20 through 22, where Jesus talks about the necessity of binding the strong man. We can also consider the, that this is where Christ crushes the head of the serpent, that promise of Genesis 3.15. And this is also where Christ acquires the keys of death and Hades. He snatches that from Satan. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 18 reads like this. John sees it in the vision. He says, Then I turned and to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like, a, like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, 
Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So be encouraged by these words and search the scriptures. Another view is that, um, and this is the last view I'm going to give, is that when Jesus died, he, his soul went up to heaven. And when he resurrected, his soul reunited with his body. And so some brothers and sisters in Christ hold that view as well. The point here is that we shouldn't be afraid to affirm all the words of this creed, but it would be helpful to know what you're, what you're saying. And so it's essential to at least grasp what do the scriptures teach when they say he descended into hell. And so what does this all mean for us? Well, it helps us to understand the need of salvation through the person and work of Christ. It's important for us to recognize that sin utterly corrupts, has utterly corrupted mankind, and that all sin deserves the full wrath of God. But God provided a way of escape, you could say, or a a means of salvation by giving us His Son, who was born in the likeness of men, who suffered His entire life, having having been made lower than the angels. We've read of His sufferings. He was crucified, He died, and was buried. We consider how and ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Let us consider trusting in Christ and in his work alone, because it is only through the work and person of Christ that all the wrath of God is absolved. And the free gift of salvation is to all those who would repent and turn to faith or to the Father through faith in Christ alone. And for the Christian, we can stand on that sure foundation of the person and work of Christ. There is nothing left to do to earn salvation. Anything we do do works out from our salvation. So now we work works of righteousness because we are clothed with that righteousness of Christ. It is his righteousness and the fact that he was declared to be the Son of God, which is why he could not be kept into the grave. And so we look forward to next Sunday when we affirm his resurrection. Let us find peace and joy. Let us boast in Christ alone. For Christ has done all the works that we could never do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.